Welcome to the audio version of the Platinum Trust Quarterly Report for December 2022. The disclaimers are available on our website at platinum.com.au under terms and conditions. My name is Dean McClelland, one of the investment specialists at Platinum, and I'm going to take you through what I think are some of the highlights of the report. I'll start by focusing initially on the Platinum International Fund and Platinum Asia Fund before sharing the key insights and outlooks from our long-only regional and sector funds. There are two additional resources that some listeners may be interested in. The report does include a feature article titled The Chinese Property Market, the Most Important Industry Globally, Which Few Understand. And there's also an audio version of the macro overview interview between Andrew Clifford and Julie McCormack titled 2023, A Great Environment for True Investors, which is available in the journal section of our website. That overview includes a discussion on where to for interest rates, recession fears, China and Europe, and what that all means for markets and Platinum's portfolios in 2023. Now let's begin with the Platinum International Fund. Over the year, the fund returned 3.1%, a 15.6% outperformance of the market. It is our view that to produce good absolute returns from investing in equities, it is critical to minimise the impact of large bear markets that come along periodically. Not only will long-term compound returns be improved by avoiding a good portion of the downside during these periods, but it also minimises the pressure on investors during these difficult times, when many succumb to the temptation to sell and lock in losses just as markets are finding their lows. To the commentary. In many respects, the economic environment is becoming clearer as we enter 2023, though not in all cases is it necessarily for the better. The US economy is clearly slowing in response to falling government spending and rising interest rates. This is now becoming apparent in employment markets, which until recently had remained resilient, as surveys show businesses are finding it easier to hire and the number of layoffs has increased sharply. However, there are large differentials in growth outlooks across sectors. We have noted previously that many sectors that benefited from COVID, e.g. e-commerce, video streaming, jewellery, would face significant headwinds as lockdown-inspired demand fell away. Interest rate-sensitive sectors are also among the weakest, with the housing sector experiencing a collapse in demand. Bright spots include areas still recovering from COVID, such as travel and autos, beneficiaries of the trend to return manufacturing to the US and diversify supply chains, e.g. capital equipment and automation, and spending on decarbonisation and energy transition projects. Overall, softer economic activity and receding inflationary pressures are likely outcomes, and with that, a peak in short-term interest rates in the year ahead. Meanwhile, the Chinese economy is poised to recover strongly. During the quarter, the government announced various measures to provide funding to residential property developers. This will allow cash-strapped developers to complete projects that have stalled due to a lack of financing. Residential construction activity is an important sector for the wider economy, and as work recommences on projects across the country, the impact on overall economic growth should be significant. Further, the government has pivoted away from its stringent zero-COVID policy measures that have suppressed economic activity. As witnessed elsewhere over the last three years, the path to reopening is not easy, with a huge increase in infections, an overwhelmed health system, and sadly, a rising death toll. Nevertheless, As we have experienced elsewhere, we expect the country will move beyond this period as herd immunity builds and the increase in mobility as lockdown ends will add further to economic activity. Of the major economies, the outlook for Europe remains the most uncertain. 
The spike in energy prices that resulted from Russia's invasion of Ukraine has resulted in an outright loss of competitiveness for European industries. Along with that, both consumer confidence and business confidence have plunged, with the former now at levels below those seen in the global financial crisis. Energy-intensive industries such as petrochemicals and fertilisers have seen significant capacity closures. Overall, consumption of gas across Europe has fallen by the order of 20%. While it would appear at the moment that Europe has enough gas in storage to avoid severe shortages this winter, the longer-term picture remains highly uncertain. However, there are some positives to offset this difficult environment. Firstly, the depreciation of the euro will offset some or all of the loss of competitiveness due to higher energy prices, depending on the energy intensity of a given business. Further, the likely recovery of China, an important trading partner for Europe, will be helpful. Finishing up with the outlook. In summary, the world is looking like the mirror image of recent years, with a slowing US economy, a recovering Chinese economy, and a European economy somewhere in between. The question is, what does this all mean for the outlook for equity markets? In recent years, the huge divergence in valuations and share price performance across different sectors and geography has made this general question difficult to answer. Today, some sectors and countries have experienced multi-year bear markets where valuations are highly attractive and we are optimistic about the future returns. On the other hand, many of the favoured growth names that led the bull market remain unappealing in some cases due to questionable business models, and in other cases due to valuations that remain high despite deteriorating earnings growth. Also, defensive names remain highly valued as investors continue to seek out hiding places. The mix of these opportunity sets suggests that at a high level, the outlook for the broad market is muted, especially in the US, where there is a relatively higher weighting of growth stocks in the indices, while at a sector or stock-specific level, there remains the possibility of strong returns. The one overriding risk for all markets is the monetary environment. Not just interest rates, which we expect to peak sometime this year, but the lack of growth in the money supply in the major economies, except for China. This can change quickly if demand for credit from the private sector picks up strongly, though that seems an unlikely prospect at the moment. Many market participants are waiting for a sign that interest rates have peaked before diving back into markets. We would be cautious on this front as markets will still need to contend with poor earnings outcomes for some time after interest rates start to fall. With such a restrictive monetary environment, there is also the potential for a financial accident that broadly impacts markets. The collapse of the cryptocurrency market does not appear to have had wider implications. We have long considered that such an accident is most likely to occur in unlisted assets, such as real estate, infrastructure or private equity, where there is little transparency and we note with concern that some high-profile unlisted commercial real estate trusts in the US are reaching their monthly redemption limits. Focusing on the opportunity side of the equation, there are some very prospective areas – One of the investment themes that we will likely dominate the decade ahead is the global energy transition as the world moves to reduce CO2 emissions. This is a significant theme for the fund, though we have broadly eschewed the obvious investment players such as solar panel makers, wind farms and electric vehicle producers. Instead, we see the current opportunity in companies that enable the transition through critical components and technologies. Examples include Infineon Technologies, a producer of the power semiconductors required to produce EVs, charging stations and renewable energy technologies. 
UPM came in a pulp producer that has developed technology to produce bioplastics and biodiesel from the waste materials from their current manufacturing lines is another example. We continue to see opportunities in companies that are yet to fully recover from the pandemic, such as online travel agent Booking Holdings or low-cost airlines Ryanair in Europe and Interglobe Aviation in India. Businesses that were harmed by low interest rates, such as European banks, remain at interesting valuations. Meanwhile, China, which has experienced a completely different economic and interest rate environment from the other major economies, resulting in a prolonged bear market, is positioned for a strong rebound. Moving over to the Platinum Asia Fund, where in the commentary it's noted that the negative China headlines reached a crescendo after the closing of the National Congress, where President Xi Jinping was re-elected for an unprecedented third term as General Secretary of the CCP. Concerns mounted that the Standing Committee, comprised of Xi loyalists, would further consolidate his power. This was complicated by several well-respected members retiring from the Central Committee. The Hang Seng sold off to levels not seen in 13 years and the China A-share versus 8-share spread reached decade highs of roughly 50%. Chinese elite politics remains opaque at the best of times. President Xi has had a strong political base for many years and this was a further step in that direction. Nonetheless, markets were alarmed by the latest political developments. The primary concerns facing China remain the downturn in the property sector, rolling zero-COVID lockdowns, and more recently, weakening exports. These have sent China into severe economic downturn. An added dimension has been escalating geopolitical tensions with the West, which has seen tail events, such as speculation of an invasion of Taiwan, or more widespread secondary sanctions on Chinese businesses and individuals come to the fore. It was encouraging to see some positive developments addressing all these concerns in recent months. Having dealt with the initial COVID strains well in 2020, China has struggled to manage the Omicron variant for much of 2022. With an older demographic, relatively ineffective domestic vaccines and poor vaccination rates, authorities have resorted to rolling lockdowns to minimise contagion, most recently in Beijing and other cities. In the wake of growing social unrest and severe economic impact, Chinese authorities pivoted from the stringent zero-COVID policies with a 20-point plan announced in early November. More recently, quarantine for inbound travellers will be scrapped early in the new year and outbound travel is opening up. This gives some confidence that a reopening of the last remaining closed economy is on the horizon. As we have witnessed in other countries, the path to reopening will not be easy. We will see headlines relating to shortages in medical treatments, stretched hospital resources and unfortunately higher instances of death over the coming months before either herd immunity is reached or we see widespread inoculation with Western vaccines. How other countries deal with inbound Chinese travellers in the interim should also be closely watched, with a number of countries already reintroducing testing requirements for inbound Chinese travellers. The contagion from the three red lines policy progressively escalated to the wider Chinese property sector over 2022. Given the systemic importance of the sector to the wider Chinese economy, it was only a matter of time before mitigating measures were taken. Authorities extended liquidity to property developers via the three arrows, namely bank credit, bonds and equity issuance. In total, we have seen RMB $4 trillion in credit disbursement and bond issuance to more than 60 developers, with 19 A-share listed developers planning to raise equity. 
Early in the new year, an outright easing of the three red lines policy was also reported. With a firmer policy in place, liquidity flowing and high-yield bond spreads narrowing, the immediate financial distress facing Chinese developers has been averted. However, the collateral damage appears to be a crisis of confidence from both developers and property buyers alike. Year-to-date, developer land purchases were down 54% year-on-year to November, and contract sales have fallen 43%. Those developers that have defaulted have seen more material sales declines of 70 to 90% while state-owned developers have fared better. Previously tight liquidity, COVID lockdowns, property price declines and concerns around stressed developers completing projects have all contributed to the downturn. The path to recovery for the property market still has a long way to play out. While vague, the recent Central Economic Work Conference hinted at new real estate development models, which could point to some forthcoming structural changes. The G20 summit held in Bali in November, marked the first instance President Xi held face-to-face meetings with Western counterparts for three years. A more moderate formal address from Xi, combined with one-on-one meetings with Western leaders, was viewed as a thawing of geopolitical relations with the West. Turning to the rest of the region, India deserves a mention given the resilience of the market. After a decade-long deleveraging cycle, loans to Indian corporates grew roughly 14% year-on-year in October. With capacity utilisation approaching 75%, a US $1.3 trillion infrastructure pipeline and a resurgent residential property market, there is growing optimism surrounding a forthcoming capital expenditure cycle. Both factors could prove a powerful combination supporting economic growth, and this certainly features in Prime Minister Modi's plans for a US $5 trillion economy by 2025. While the prospects for India look bright, and we remain optimistic regarding our current Indian investments, the elevated valuations do curb some of our enthusiasm for the broader market. During the quarter, members of our team visited Thailand and Indonesia. Thailand is re-emerging post-COVID. With a heavy reliance on tourism, roughly 20% of pre-COVID GDP, a less aggressive tightening stance by the Bank of Thailand and a general election forthcoming in May 2023, it remains the only ASEAN economy where GDP is still below pre-pandemic levels. However, inbound tourism is recovering quickly from uh, roughly 10 million in 2022 to as much as 23 million expected this year as Chinese tourists return. Indonesia has been one of the region's best-performing economies and markets, supported by a resource-rich trade surplus. Like many Asian countries, and with the new business-friendly Omnibus Jobs Creation Bill enacted, Indonesia is also a beneficiary of large foreign direct investment. Specifically, Indonesia is focused on leveraging its vast nickel resources into a vertically integrated electric vehicle industry, with leaders such as LG Energy, Chinese battery maker Cattle, and Hyundai already committing large sums of foreign direct investment to set up manufacturing. These trips yielded valuable on-the-ground insights after many years between visits. Small positions in a number of new ideas were initiated in the fund post the trip. Finally, to the outlook for the Asia Fund. Given an uncertain backdrop, it remains difficult to express absolute confidence about the direction of Asian markets in 2023. 
While inflation is normalising from its elevated levels and interest rates are getting closer to the end of their tightening cycle, the risk of a US recession is gaining wider acceptance, with possible contagion to some Asian economies. That said, there are seeds of optimism for Asian markets, particularly as most economies appear more resilient versus prior downturns, given more stable political settings, proactive monetary policy combined with sound structural reforms, and China emerging from COVID. We continue to find attractive investment opportunities with valuations across many markets remaining reasonable. Moving over to the Platinum Global Fund long only, portfolio manager Clay Smolinski notes that in past quarterly reports we have mentioned one guide where we used to find investment opportunities is to keep asking what new problems need to be solved and what industries will benefit from providing the solution. A good recent example is Europe's renewed focus on energy independence, combined with a global goal to reduce carbon emissions, which is driving a wave of investment in electrification, requiring power semiconductors, electric vehicle batteries, and copper and nickel, and also a reassessment of nuclear energy as a viable option. In exploring this change, the fund has many current and former investments, including Infineon Technologies in power semis, LG Chem in EV batteries, as well as Glencore and Sumitomo Metal Mining in copper and nickel. Along these lines, the issue of security of supply and nearshoring is getting a lot more focus by the business community and governments alike, following the experience of COVID supply chain disruptions, the Russia-Ukraine war and geopolitical questions over a long-term reliance on Chinese manufacturing. Given we have spent the last 40 years linking global supply chains, unsurprisingly, our discussions with companies keep reinforcing the fact that relocating supply chains will be slower and more difficult than first expected. Indeed, the accelerated shift away from Russia as a sourcing destination is an interesting test case of the difficulties and unintended impacts this can have. Jumping ahead to the outlook... When thinking about the outlook for asset prices in 2023, there are a number of factors to consider. On the negative side, we would highlight, one, the number of economic leading indicators that historically signal a recession continues to increase. Two, after an incredible period of new money creation in 2020 and 2021, money outstanding, as measured by M2, or US bank deposits, is shrinking. This is another expression of tight financial conditions and is not supportive of asset prices. Three, we are witnessing the bursting of the fourth great stock market bubble, the others being 1929, 1972 and the year 2000. While this is a small sample set, the breaking of these past bubbles was always followed by recession and market declines of roughly 50%. On the positive side, one, China is already in a deep recession, and following the abandonment of of its zero-COVID policy, it is likely to have a large economic recovery in 2023. With the size of the Chinese economy now approaching that of the US, a strong Chinese recovery can offset weakness elsewhere. And two, the S&P, NASDAQ, and Stocks Euro 600 have all had decent corrections from their late December 2021 highs, and sentiment is cautious. Adjusting for inflation, the fall in value has been larger still. Overall, we feel the background of a deflating equity bubble, a rapid increase in interest rates and the normalisation of corporate earnings distorted by stimulus still calls for patience. 
while we have seen valuation multiples adjust in the face of higher interest rates, the next phase for investors is a focus on falling earnings. The silver lining to the above is that, much like the end of the 2000 bubble, there is a decent amount of valuation dispersion within markets, with many industrial and cyclical sectors already priced incredibly cheaply. At this point in the cycle, our favoured method of operation is to be nimble with our cash, continue to rotate into sectors that are already pricing in a recession, and focus on building holdings in those industries that will be the sources of incremental investment and growth over the next five years. For the Platinum European Fund, the managers note that European markets staged a strong recovery over the quarter, with the financials, industrials, consumer discretionary and healthcare sectors leading the way. Investors were more positive on Europe as fears of a deep recession driven by an energy crisis subsided, helped by a significant reduction in gas demand by 20% and favourable weather. Now, inflation remains the most significant challenge for Europe, but so far, it seems manageable. Interest rates are still topical, and during the quarter, the ECB increased the official interest rate by 1.25 percentage points to 2.5%, and expects to raise it significantly further, with both headline and core inflation tracking substantially higher than the 2% target. Unemployment continued to track lower, while consumer confidence bounced somewhat from the recent lows. However, it is still below levels reached during the GFC. Clearly, European labour markets are still strong, with labour shortages at new highs, but wage growth has not yet spiralled out of control. One key position that the managers go into in focus is uh, a company called Puma, the third largest sportswear brand in the world, with about 2% market share. Sportswear benefits from long-term structural growth trends, as well as from a favourable industry structure. Over the last decade, Trends such as casualisation, athleisure, comfort and health and wellness have been associated with the growth of the sportswear industry. Hybrid working arrangements since COVID have incrementally added to these trends. Puma has positioned itself as the fastest brand in the world and is associated with Usain Bolt, who has been a key endorser of the brand since his teenage years. The brand has re-accentuated its performance heritage in football and aims to represent brave, confident, determined and joyful values with a hint of rebelliousness and cheekiness. These carry the brand well into youth fashion and are a bit different from Nike's more serious positioning. Puma's price positioning is somewhat lower than that of Nike and Adidas on similar products. In 2013, Puma installed new management team that instituted a turnaround plan recognising the underinvestment in its performance heritage, which aids consumer perceptions in terms of authenticity and credibility. Puma built consumer appeal by using celebrities as well as athletes in marketing campaigns. One of the key successes in Puma's turnaround has been its partnerships with celebrity influencers, particularly women. This included Rihanna, Selena Gomez and recently Dua Lipa. Puma's product strategy prioritises a comprehensive offer for women and over-indexes to women relative to its competition. Puma's expansion into basketball is a good example of how it is building momentum and relevance. In 2018, Puma re-entered the Nike, Jordan-dominated US basketball segment, appointing Jay-Z in a creative director role, signing rookie players in the draft and adding basketball product ranges. Now, Puma's objective is not only to participate in the sizable market for basketball footwear, but also to create a halo effect for the brand and gain shelf space with retail partners. 
It's taken years for the company to complete its product development and segmentation strategy. As a result, Puma's financial results improved and revenue grew faster than any of its competitors, doubling in the last six years, while its operating margin rose to 8%, closing the gap with Adidas. After benefiting from the COVID-boosted demand over the last 18 months, sportswear stocks have declined as investors contemplate a recession with associated pressure on sales and margins, which are retreating from elevated levels. Furthermore, investors are concerned that strong growth and outsized margin contribution that China has offered brands in the last decade may not continue due to weak economic growth and increasing competition from local brands. This backdrop has seen Puma's stock price fall roughly 50%. We are attracted by this work-in-progress brand that is well-positioned in the structurally appealing sportswear industry. To an outlook, the European market is down 10% over the last 12 months in local currency terms. We believe that the market is still somewhat complacent about the deteriorating economic situation and the impact of higher rates and higher energy and labour costs on corporate profits. The environment remains highly uncertain. Monetary conditions are no longer extremely loose, Higher interest rates are slowing down the European economies and we are unlikely to see interest rate cuts anytime soon. Energy supply remains unresolved, even though Europe managed to get through the winter without any major rationing of gas. The portfolio is 64% net invested, with 25% in shorts and 11% in cash. We are positioned defensively to protect our investors' capital and we continue to hold significant index shorts and a few individual stock short positions. We continue to buy stocks that we feel offer good value and our pipeline of ideas is growing steadily. Over to the Platinum Japan Fund, where portfolio manager James Hulse notes, Japanese equities rallied during the quarter, at first in line with other developed markets, then likely on news that China, Japan's close neighbour and major trading partner, was exiting its zero COVID policies, which has positive implications for the return of Chinese tourists and the demand for Japanese goods. The rally persisted even as the yen strengthened until late in the quarter when the Bank of Japan surprised the market by announcing it would increase its target ban for the 10-year bond rate, causing the yen to strengthen further and equities to sell off. It's worth noting that investment in IT services and software has accelerated as the pandemic forced recognition of the need to replace antiquated systems and processes. To that end, there's focus on a new stock in the portfolio called Shift Inc., Shift provides independent software testing and assurance services both to end clients and to the systems integrators using specialised testers who do not have to be experienced software engineers. This allows Shift to provide testing at lower costs than the systems integrators, which the end clients love. One might be forgiven for thinking that these integrators would resist this outsourcing, but with the shortage of engineers, the integrators are all too happy for Shift to take on this lower value work and free up their engineers for higher value tasks. Shift has been growing rapidly and looks to have a long growth path ahead of it. It's worth noting that following on from recent reports, on the corporate governance front, we see continued grounds for optimism as an activist shareholder succeeded in appointing two independent directors to the board of Fujisoft and another activist has called an extraordinary general meeting to replace the independent directors at elevator manufacturer Fujitech. Even if not fully successful, these actions reinforce to company boards in general and outside directors in particular the importance of listening to shareholders and adopting good governance practices if they wish to avoid being a target of shareholder action. 
We expect that, over time, this should translate to better corporate performance and cash returns for shareholders across Japanese equity markets. Moving to the Platinum International Brands Fund. The major market debate amongst investors in consumer stocks is to what extent the strength of the US consumer can persist in the face of the rapid rise in interest rates and negative wealth effect of falling house prices and declining bond and stock prices. The jobs market continues to be strong, with buoyant wage increases and labour shortages in many areas. That said, housing starts, known as a bellwether for employment, have rolled over and appear likely to show continued deterioration in light of much decreased affordability due to the much increased payments now required on new mortgages. Conversely, the fall in the price of oil and other commodities has provided a cushion for consumer spending as wallets are less burdened by spending on necessities. Nevertheless, the US personal savings rate fell to a record monthly low of 2.2% of GDP in October as many households draw down on pandemic-era excess savings and credit card debt has surged to record levels, more than reversing the decline during COVID. We can observe areas of weakness where the impact of the withdrawal of pandemic stimulus and a reversal of the stay-at-home spending trends has seen retail sales and margins begin a reversion to pre-pandemic levels. This is especially visible in categories such as furniture and homewares, casual apparel and jewellery. That said, areas like home improvement, luxury goods, travel and sporting goods continue to demonstrate somewhat surprising strength. In contrast to the US, the Chinese consumer was not previously buoyed by large stimulus payments, has been locked down and thus constrained in the ability to spend, and is now experiencing a loosening of monetary conditions, the opposite of the dynamic in the West. The exit from the zero-COVID policy restrictions should, once the current wave of infections subsides, unleash pent-up demand across many categories, especially services such as travel and leisure, Many relevant stocks have now moved upward in anticipation of a recovery, but remain at depressed levels well below pre-COVID trading, and are certainly not incorporating expectations for a wave of new spending. One new position added to the fund is Halion. It's a recent listing, with the corporation being the result of the merger of the OTC and consumer businesses of GSK, Pfizer and Novartis. The company owns brands ranging from Panadol painkillers to Sensodyne toothpaste, which operate in attractive categories and generate strong profitability. We expect the company to deliver modest growth and strong cash flow, which will enable it to rapidly pay down its large debt load. Our expectation was for the stock to re-rate upward as the market became more familiar with the story and the strength of its pricing-driven top line, and as debt levels became less of a concern for investors. This seems to be playing out so far, with the stock rallying nicely from our initial purchase. With regards to the outlook, we remain very cautious on the financial health of consumers in the US and Europe, as we expect these markets to enter painful recessions as a result of the dramatic tightening in monetary and fiscal conditions. Meanwhile, China appears poised for an economic rebound as it emerges from multiple years of tight financial conditions and pandemic-related restrictions. This could unleash a wave of spending that is far from being priced in to consumer, uh, Chinese consumer stocks. 
As evidenced by the additions to the portfolio during the quarter, we continue to uncover attractive opportunities in areas suffering from temporary setbacks and depressed sentiment. So while we maintain a relatively low net investor position, we are cautiously optimistic as to the outlook for the fund. Moving to the Platinum International Healthcare Fund. Dr. Bianca Ogden, the portfolio manager, writes, The sentiment towards biotechs has changed ever so slightly in recent months. Successful progress is rewarded, while failure results in sell-offs. Previously, positive news saw very muted and even declines in share prices. Many investors continue to hide out in managed care and pharmaceutical stocks, with Eli Lilly being the consensus favourite stock despite its high valuation and increasing competition in the obesity treatment space. Within healthcare, biotech and emerging life science tool companies remain the most interesting sector, given the outstanding innovation potential and valuation. Contrary to public opinion, the funding environment for these companies is healthy and equity financings are being completed quickly, particularly when clinical data is successful. Licensing deals continue unabated as well, with several of our holdings receiving non-dilutive cash from partners, along with a share price uplift. It's worth noting there is a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. Sanofi and Johnson & Johnson both took a closer look at Horizon Therapeutics, with Amgen acquiring the company in the end for almost US $28 billion, while Sanofi and J&J stayed disciplined and decided against a purchase. Bianca notes that inflammatory diseases are a very broad and important disease area. Immunovant, another of our holdings in this space, had a very strong performance over the quarter of 218%, as investors started to realise the potential of its anti-FCRN assets for the treatment of autoimmune diseases. We first invested in Immunovant when it was trading at valuations that were close to its cash balance. Royvant Sciences, the parent company of Immunovant and a holding in the fund, also performed well. As one of its other Vant subsidiaries, Dermavant, launched a new topical psoriasis cream. Also, during the quarter, Sumitomo Pharma raised the bid for MyVant Sciences, a company it has had a significant interest in since 2019. We've trimmed our position now in Immunovant, given its performance, and we exited MyVant. It hasn't been all smooth sailing, though. During the quarter, we also saw some disappointing returns within a couple of our biotechs. Recursion and Exciencia, two companies that are using computer sciences to change drug discovery. Now, both companies continue to see their valuations decline, with Exciencia trading below its cash balance. Both companies are making progress, but the market is not currently assigning any value to their platforms. We believe this will change once clinical data becomes available. We added BioNTech and Moderna back to the portfolio during the quarter as we're seeing progress in cancer vaccines as well as a very disciplined approach by both companies to their cash piles. Our investment case when we first invested in both companies in 2018 and 2019 was very much focused on cancer vaccines. In terms of outlook, as is the custom every year, in early January, healthcare companies and investors gather in San Francisco to kick off the new year. This year, 2023 guidance will be watched carefully and business development teams will be busy. The coming year is very important for healthcare, given that we could see the approval of further gene therapy products to treat haemophilia A and Duchenne muscular dystrophy, as well as the launch of a beta amyloid antibody, uh, 
an antibody medication that slows the cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. It will be crunch time for many smaller companies. Expectations are for a more volatile first half of the year, while the latter part of the year should see further consolidation of this industry. And finally, to the Platinum International Technology Fund. Now, technology stocks in aggregate finished the quarter largely flat, with investors reassessing valuations and revising down growth prospects in light of the austere monetary policies implemented by the Fed and other major central banks. The NASDAQ 100 technology sector index uh, returned 0.5% for the quarter. The narrower PHLX semiconductor sector index returned 10%, suggesting that investors are trying to look through the negative news flow and positioning for a 2023 recovery. Once again, high growth and unprofitable technology companies won the wooden spoon for performance. The ARK Innovation ETF fell 17% during the quarter and returned a cumulative negative 67% for the year. The fund's positive performance for the quarter can be attributed to a recovery in Chinese internet stocks, as well as strong performance from our European holdings and US hardware and semiconductor names. Our selective short-selling of hyper-valued, high-growth stocks also added to performance. There are a number of changes to the portfolio noted. During the quarter, we added to our position in France-based semiconductor substrate manufacturer, Soitec. We believe the company is strategically positioned to benefit from the adoption of 5G wireless technology and electric vehicles. We also initiated a new position in Match Group, the largest player in the online dating industry, comprising 45 brands including Tinder and Hinge. After a 70% decline in its share price over the year, we believe it is now attractively valued and well-positioned in a secularly growing industry. We also reviewed the investment case for Netflix after the sharp decline in the stock earlier in the year. We initiated a new position during the quarter as we believe the introduction of a cheaper ad-supported subscription package will widen the platform's appeal to a broader audience and restore growth in the medium term. It's worth noting that the quarter saw an escalation in US-China trade tensions. The US Department of Commerce introduced sweeping new export controls requiring companies to receive a license to export US-made advanced computing and semiconductor products to China. In addition, several Chinese technology companies were added to the so-called entity list, which prevents US companies from selling any product or service to them unless the vendors receive specific approval from the US Department of Commerce. It's difficult to estimate the impact of these restrictions on our semiconductor equipment holdings, since a particular system is not necessarily specific to a process technology node. However, depending on the company, we estimate that the negative revenue impact could be between 3% and 10%. In the very long term, of course, if high-end semiconductor manufacturing capacity is needed, it will get built in other jurisdictions, such as the US, Japan and Europe eventually offsetting the Chinese demand shortfall. What started as a trade war during the Trump administration has now gradually evolved into what some observers have defined as a chip war. Gregory Allen from the Washington-based Center for Strategic and International Studies has articulated the rationale of the Biden administration in choking off China's access to the future of AI, a good piece that was written soon after the introduction of the export bans. In terms of outlook, As consensus grows among investors that 2023 will bring a recession in the US and Europe, a number of unknowns remain on the horizon, which makes it difficult to predict the year's course with certainty. 
Broadly, we believe that the fund, through careful selection of long and short positions, remains positioned to benefit from the ongoing shift away from expensively valued, unprofitable technology stocks, while holding core positions in semiconductors, e-commerce, digital advertising, fintech, and enterprise software names at very attractive valuations. And that's a wrap. We'll leave it there as we've covered a range of topics and stocks in focus. As I mentioned at the start, you may also be interested in the macro overview audio interview with Andrew Clifford, as well as the feature article on the Chinese property market. Please do get in touch if you'd like more information or to provide feedback. The email is invest at platinum.com.au. We'd love to talk to you further about investing. Thank you for listening. All the best.